Those of you staying here in the auditorium and following along with the Bible study, we're headed to John chapter 1. John chapter 1 and 1 Corinthians 15. So we're going to look at those two passages as you're turning. If you're joining with us and aren't familiar with what we're doing, what we've decided to do here for the next few months, mostly this school year, is we are going through a uh, uh, curriculum. We're going through a materials that's talking about a one-to-one challenge. Now, we have booklets that most everybody's using, but if you don't have a booklet, the fellows have handouts that are that are uh, complex complementary to what the book, they don't have the same page number, so if I refer to a page number, you'll have to just figure it out from there, because we're dealing with the second edition is the booklet, and we cannot copy this for handouts, we can only do the first edition. And so what we're talking about is that idea, one-to-one, is creating a more personal atmosphere in ministering and discipling other individuals who may not know the Lord or who are young in the Lord. And so over this next year and then in the following uh, months to follow, we're challenging, we're encouraging to think about one individual in particular you can pray for, that individual that you'll focus on, trying to create a friendship so you have an opportunity to do a Bible study with them and then somebody you can be accountable to, some individual that you would say, okay, we're going to be praying together on a regular basis, we'll be sharing some things that we might learn in our devotions and we can help each other out and then as well, that take one is the idea that periodically what we're going to do is we're going to be offering different classes, uh, just brief snippets of classes that might give you an idea of how to answer somebody who questions, is the Bible really the Word of God, or some other of those apologetic ideas. And so the materials and the goal of what we're doing is trying to make sure we equip our people so that they can take the Word out and share it with other individuals. Material we're using is this booklet. They are free to our church family who are going to be here. There is uh, booklets that are out on the uh, table out there if you haven't picked one up. And uh, there is a difference between the two piles there. One is the memory verses are in King James. The other one, the memory verses are in the NASB. And uh, some of you have asked for either. And as an idea of just to be able to work with some people that just struggle with understanding the these and the thous. Simple Christianity is another one of those booklets. And I wanted to mention a couple of these just to get started this morning. Uh, when you're doing Bible studies, let me go to this spot. There are a couple books I mentioned last week. This book is one that's talking and giving ideas of how to turn the conversation to the gospel. How to create conversations with many creative ideas. And uh, again, the author may have other materials that I'm not familiar with, but in this book, it's a good, solid book. And he's giving practical ideas uh, and suggestions on how to turn your conversations. It's like in its 10th reprint already. I was surprised by that. There's another one that we had mentioned on Wednesday evening, and this is just on personal evangelism that you can uh, get your hands on. It's encouraging personal evangelism. And again, we have both of these that are to be in the bookstore to be available if you would like to purchase them. And then there's another little booklet. This is the uh, pocket edition, if we can call it that, or Bible edition. This is the first lesson that we're going through. So if you're talking with an individual and say, hey, let's just start, rather than, okay, uh, let's be frank about it. If you say, let's do a Bible study and hand the person this book, okay, with its thickness, that might be a little bit intimidating. So if you want to get them started with something that doesn't look as um, thick, Okay, uh, then you have this, and it's the same material, but it might be an opportunity that you could do on a simpler basis. One of the things I wanted to do, and we did this last couple of weeks, is just take a minute or two and just pray for individuals that you're sharing the gospel with. Because of the length of the material, I want to keep things moving this morning, but I don't want to forego that aspect of praying as a as group or with somebody else. So let's take the next couple of minutes, and you can pray privately, or you can pray with somebody next to you, and you can pray out loud. The, the hum of prayer is always a sweet sound in the auditorium. 
And so here we have the opportunity. Let's take a couple minutes and let's pray for souls, even some that may show up this morning for a worship service. Let's pray that the Lord would use us and get the gospel out. Let's take the next couple minutes. You pray together with somebody or by yourself, but let's pray on some of those individuals that you're concerned about. Go ahead and have that time and then I'll close and start our, close your prayer and start our lesson time. Father, we thank you for this opportunity. We have to just discuss your word, to learn it. We thank you for the simplicity and these basic truths that many of us have known for a long time, but just to rehearse them helps us to grow in appreciation for what you have done for us and help that to be a thrill to our hearts. Thank you for these folk. Thank you for their interest in learning your word. Thank you for them coming out this morning, even despite the ugly weather. We thank you that it's not snow that we're shoveling, but we thank you for your grace and we give us, give us a blessed time. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. That was the override comment I heard from you folk this morning coming in is like yeah nice rainy day and quite a few of you said at least we're not shoveling it so I take it you're not anxious for snow um, unless some of you are some of you did okay we're praying for you guys as well okay we'll we'll back up and start a prayer time again we're in the section called salvation and those of you who haven't been with us let me back up and just do a little bit of review and then we're going to jump into the around page nine or ten where we want to pick up this morning in the booklet um, many of you are familiar with that old story about the Chicago fire that happened in 1871 yes no O'Leary's Mrs. O'Leary's cow supposedly kicked over the you know lantern and started, and such a such a huge fire, three point three square miles, lasted two days, three hundred killed, and a thousand a hundred thousand left homeless. Do you realize that was not the biggest fire that week in America? Yes, no. There was another fire that had happened at the very same time. It was up in Wisconsin. And it happened in a region that's called the Peshtigo Fire. What happened is there was a dry time for, there was no rain, nothing at all, for the 14 weeks, very dry. And then because trains coming through sparked up some of the, uh, the sparks started some fires along the train rail. And then this, this wind came along. And in that fire that lasted a couple days, you can see there was 2,400 square miles burned. The stories are told about people who are running in to the rivers to just get away from it. And if they came up out of the water to get a breath, their hair would be singed. The fire was that, uh, that drastic. And it, it ended up being hurricane force at that time, what they could understand, hurricane force winds because of the heat and everything that's gone, combined with it. People would jump into their well, wells and they found a number of scorched bodies. People trying to get into the wells to get away from the fire. Tragic. 1,200 people died in those fires in the wooded area of Wisconsin. It reminded 
reminded me of the fact that sometimes we hear about the big stories of people who are away from the Lord, the Judases, the Pilots, those who we know, they're, they're, they're the ones who are the, they're the Hitlers, they're definitely in hell. And we don't realize, wait a minute, there is something more tragic that is closer to home to us than just something that we read about that gets the headlines. And that is, what about our situation between us and Jesus Christ? What about our standing with him? And so we've been talking about that. And if you're going to do a Bible study with an individual, make it very personable. Let's start off with those thoughts that we have in the first few pages. We're talking about, and you're showing them from the Bible. God is the author, therefore he's the judge. God created, so people are going to be accountable to him. Our thoughts were that God as the judge is totally holy and totally sinless. And therefore he has a standard that if you're going to live in his presence, you would have to reach that standard of perfection, and nobody can do it except for Jesus Christ. He's the only person, which leaves us in a real pickle and a real bind. And the Bible indicates that all of us have chosen. Not only are we born with sin, but it's compounded by the fact that we have chosen to sin on top of that. And we read the verses, and if you're sitting there and showing somebody through the Bible, you're saying, okay, all have sin. You ask them the question, who does this mean? Does And I do anyway. Does this mean so-and-so and so-and-so and so-and-so? And usually they get get the answers and then get right back, does this mean you? And you show them there's none righteous. None like uh, none of us are righteous except for Jesus Christ. And then we talk about that judgment day, there's going to be a judgment. Okay, there's two areas. There could be more. You, could, you can expand it however you want. I'm just going to say with an individual. Two particular areas that are going to be viewed at judgment day by God Almighty. One is this. One is sin. Jesus even talked about every word, every deed is going to be called into, into account at that judgment day. And so the fact is, we can't hide our sins, though we want to. We're going to see in Job this morning how Job talks about people who think they're getting away with sin. They do a lot of it at what time of the day, do you think Job says? People try to do their sin to get away from it. At nighttime, he talks about that in, in Job chapter 22, or wherever we're at this morning, 23. Um, and so he, that idea of covering up sin is just impossible. There's a gal who was an astronomer a number of years ago, and she had worked with the telescopes and things like that, and she was doing a lot of, a lot of great work with her telescope. But she wrote of an account in one of her diaries of, what, that, of a humorous account that as she was scanning the horizon, all of a sudden something came into view several miles away. It was, a, it was an area that she had a clear view to the next hill, so to speak, that was like 10 miles away or 7 miles away from where she was. And so she saw something moving, but it was blurred because she was looking beyond. So she adjusted her telescope, and she saw something that was rather humorous. There was a grove of apple trees on top of this horizon on this hill, and she saw two boys that were at this apple area that she knew the owner was very particular about nobody being in his apple orchard. And so she watched the two boys. They snuck over the fence. They're looking around. One climbed into the tree. The other was the lookout to warn. And they got a whole bag of apples. And she wrote about that idea saying later, they thought nobody saw, but here I saw from a seven mile distance. God doesn't need his telescope to keep an eye on us. God knows what we're doing. Not only knows what we're doing, he knows our thoughts. And he knows even our heart. And so that's why the Bible says that man is desperately wicked. His heart is deceitful. That's what we're talking about here, that we're going to answer to God one day. And by divine law, when we answer, that if God were to say, okay, I'm going to give you what deserve, you deserve, we're not going to be getting into heaven. Because the Bible says, knowing not that the unrighteous shall not inherit the kingdom of God. And then he lists a variety of 
unrighteous deeds. Not all of that the Bible says, but a, but a number of them. That talks about the idea of, of an unrighteous person who's not going to be allowed into heaven. We have a listing of some other verses that are talking about that same idea where he talks about there shall in no wise enter into it is heaven in the context of Revelation 21. Anything that works abomination, that makes a lie. So anything that lied ever would not be allowed into heaven because of, of the, uh, the holiness of God. The wages of sin. If God gave us what we deserve, we're telling that individual, we're sharing, or somebody shared with us, we deserve death. And death has different aspects. We all know about physical death, but there's a spiritual death. That man is separated from God in fellowship. And if you look at the verse, we're comparing death with life. And what kind of life is talked about in this verse? Eternal. And so the comparison is going to be an eternal death when it's an eternal life. Well, eternal death is separation from God forever. So I'm talking to Alice and I'm saying, where would be the place that you would be separated from God forever? There's only one place, right? Conclusion? The lake of fire or hell. And so we know that, uh, that God in his holiness, when he judges, that nobody's going to be, be allowed into heaven. In fact, they shall have their part in the lake which burneth with fire and brimstone, which is the second death or second separation. And so there's a, there's a real dilemma that you and I have that Jesus Christ even said, I'm going to say to those people that one day, he says, I'm going to depart, you, I want you to depart, you workers of iniquity, for I never knew you. We don't have a relationship. Your sins aren't covered. In fact, they shall go into everlasting punishment and the righteous into life everlasting. The point I want to make with an individual is this isn't our idea. This isn't what our church believes, J.N.S. Therefore, it's our, our creed or dogma. This is what Jesus said. We believe it because Jesus said it. Okay, it is, our, it is our dogma, but it's because it's the word of God. And so the Bible says, Jesus says, that the unrighteous, those that commit iniquity, do not deserve to get into heaven. And uh, the fact is supported by multiple different Bible verses that talk about that idea. But we said there was two things. One is sin we're going to be judged for, okay, or sin that's not dealt with. The other one is this. Are, are our names written in the Lamb's book of life? And the only names that get written in that Lamb's Book of Life are those who have dealt with their sin the right way. And so the Bible makes it clear that those who cannot enter into heaven are those who work abomination, make a lie, but... He makes an exception. They which are written in the Lamb's book of life. He talks about it. Whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast in the lake of fire. So I don't deserve to get into heaven, but there is the possibility that you and I could have our names written in the book of life. Therefore, we could get into heaven. How do we get our names written in that book of life? So that's the big question here is how do we make sure our names are written in that book of life? And so as you're sharing the word of God, you're saying, okay, let's make sure that you understand it's not the way most people think. For by grace say you save through faith that not of yourselves, it is a gift of God, not of works. Not, and you can put any work you want. If I'm standing there and talking with somebody, the typical works are baptism, going to church, following the Bible, giving money. Put those in there while you're sharing the Word of God to illustrate, to highlight the point. Nothing that we do merits us getting into heaven. There's nothing we can do to cover up our sins. And so we're going through, we're talking about that materials, and we remind them of this verse, not by the works of righteousness which we have done, but according to His mercy He saved us. By the washing of regeneration. Well, now we have to figure out what is the 
this washing of regeneration. What is, how do we get that? How does that come into our life? How do we get our name written in the Lamb's Book of Life? That brings us to the good news. And the good news starts with Jesus Christ. John chapter 1 gives us an idea about who Jesus is when it's starting the gospel. And so when you read in John chapter 1, you have your Bibles open to that, and I'm going to read through what we have here. Keep in mind as you're going through, and we're going to discuss this just for a couple minutes between us, what do we learn about Jesus Christ from these verses? Starting with John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. The Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. Jumping down to verse 14. And the Word was made flesh and, and dwelt among us, and we beheld His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and truth. It is obvious from verse 14, the Word is Jesus Christ, that He came in the flesh. What is this whole verse? What does it teach you about Jesus? He's creator. Okay? Jesus is creator. Anything else? What's that? Yeah, it's, it's simple, but it's profound. He's God. Anything else? He has always been. Excellent. Anything else? I'm sorry? He became a man. Great. Anything else? Okay, he's, he's creator, eternal, not created. Somebody else over here? He's what? He's almighty. Excellent. Good thoughts. Let me add to that a few things. Are, he's eternal, you said. He is God, you said. He is a creator, you said. He became flesh. You added a few other things. And so when we talk about, you're, you're talking with an individual. Keep in mind, if you're sharing the word with somebody who is Bible ignorant, they may, and by the way, more so in America than what we ever thought. Yes? Is that true? Do some people in America not know what Christmas is about? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Some don't know what Easter is about. And so you're saying, you're talking, and again, the majority of people do. But you have to talk about, okay, this is Jesus coming in the flesh. This is, and we all have the picture at Christmas time. He's a babe, sweet, cuddly, cute. But you want to inform, as you're sitting there doing the Bible study, that sweet, cuddly, cute baby was eternal. God, creator. He, what's, what's a word that describes Jesus coming from heaven, his attitude, coming from heaven to become a baby, a human baby? Humility? Okay. Anything else? The, what's that? The incarnation is the theological word. But that humility and that idea that Jesus, God Almighty, would come in the flesh for us. And it's amazing. You know, the Bible has a whole lot to say about this man. And you want to make sure that they understand that Jesus lived a life different than anybody else. In fact, he was virgin born so that he was not tainted by sin. Okay? So from the beginning, he didn't have a sin nature. And we said we all have a sin nature. And we not only have a sin nature, but what do we do by choice? We sin. Did Jesus ever choose to sin? No. Was he ever tempted? When? Okay. Tempted by Satan at the wilderness temptation. Was that the only time he was tempted? No, because one of, the, one of the gospel synoptics that records his temptation, Satan went away for a season and he comes back. And so Jesus is tempted on multiple occasions, but he is with, this makes him unique, he is without 
sin. And that is very critical that we help an individual that love, that understand that Jesus is sinless. He is the only human being, because he's God in the flesh, that is totally sinless. But God showed his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners. This is such a classic verse you want to be sharing. What stands out about Jesus Christ in this passage? That you're, you're sharing with somebody. What are you going to point out? Okay, God had to do what? Okay, God's providing salvation, not something we do. Anything else? Okay, the idea, that's a good word for an unsaved person. Okay. <laughs> substitutionary atonement. Okay, you would, you would simplify it, obviously. But we would understand in this room, substitutionary atonement is basically... Yeah, he's taking our place. That's all it is. He took our place. Okay, that stands out. Anything else stands out about Christ in this verse? That you're, sh- you're sharing, you're trying to help that person understand the word of God. Okay, okay. There wasn't a cleaning of us up. Good point. That we don't have to reform ourselves. Okay, anything else? Okay, God initiated this, this opportunity. Anything else? Not to bore you, but if that individual sitting there, what did Christ do? Okay, Christ died for us, okay? That he died for us, that this is an act, this, this so simply, okay? This is so simply, he is God's expression of love for us. That he would die for us. This is just, and everything you said is so true, and you want to add to it, add whatever you want. But help them to understand from this verse, even though we are sin-filled, what does God feel for us? He still loves us. He still loves us. Even though he knows that by law, where should we end up? Okay, we're separated from him by law, but by love, what did he do? He sent his son. He sent his sinless son to come to die in our place, that substitutionary atonement, that he would take our place. It's an amazing thought that somebody would take the place. True story of an individual who was living up in New England, and they heard about the gold rush in the, in, in the 1800s. So they, the man left. He said to his wife, I'll send for you when I have the money for you and our son. And after a period of time, he sends the money. She gets on one of the freighters. She is sailing towards San Francisco. And as they're sailing, all of a sudden they hear the most dreadful words that can be heard on a wooden ship. Fire, fire, fire is broken out. And so they're trying to get the lifeboats down. The captain is assured that they need to abandon ship quickly because they're also carrying a cargo of ammunition. He knows as soon as the fire hits that, the whole ship is going to explode. And so the woman is you know, running towards one of, the, one of the lifeboats and the lifeboat is full. She asks the officer, he says, there's no more room, there's no more room. She begs, she pleads, please, please, please take my son, my son, take my son, just one, he's a little boy, just take my son. And they said, we don't have room for two. She says, I'm not asking for two. I'm asking for my one son. And so the people in the lifeboat, they pled with the officer. He said, okay, the one more, just the one more. And she hugged her boy. She says, tell your father that I died at peace knowing that you got saved. She gave her life for her son. We look at that. We say, that's very commendable. And by the way, do we understand that type of motherly love? Yes, we understand that. But this, what Christ did is so much more is so, you know, fantastically so much more because the Bible says he is the just one and we are the unjust. And again, Christ also once, just one time, okay, one time that he had to do what? 
He suffered, okay, for hours for sin, not sign. The just for the unjust that he might do, do one thing. This was his goal. To bring us to God. Okay, that's, it's, but by the way, just, just as you're looking in, you're going to come back to this verse in a few minutes. Okay, not only did he die, but there's another aspect here that is so critical. He rose again. He rose again. Okay, so right now we're emphasizing with that individual, with your, with your couple that you're trying to go through, and we're talking about we're unjust. We want to make sure that they understand. We, you know, and, and this, this is so, so important in the American society to get people to understand we don't deserve heaven. The reason I say it's so important, do we live in an entitlement society? Yes, much more. It, it's just, it's, it's getting more and more, Right? That, that the authorities, they owe us. They owe us. Do you, do you think this is going to hit theologically? I mean, it's, it's rampant when it comes to economics in America, right? That people have an entitlement society. Uh, that I don't have to work to get paid. Okay, is, am, am, I, am I out to lunch on this? Is it, is it becoming more and more pre- predominant? Okay, think how that's going to affect people in their theological thinking. If they are of the mindset that somebody else is going to take care and they owe me because I'm, I'm an American, okay? This idea, well, I go to church. I, I, you know, I live in a charitable country. I'm okay. Wait a minute. The Bible says we are unjust. We don't deserve, but Jesus, who was the just one, he gave, he came and put his, himself in our place. Did I lock up again? Okay. Hello. Gentlemen, I locked up again. Okay. And I don't know if it needs to be... Uh... Did you do that or did I do that? You did that? Okay. Do, 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 do. Okay. Am I to do it? I'm doing it. Oh, you're the man. Thank you. You're the man, Eric. Just, this is the slide that, um, that Pastor Tony uses a lot with the kids. Do you, do you understand, recognize what's happening here? It's a very picturesque slide. Um, what's happening to Jesus? Where are you? In this picture, if we fill, filled it out, where are we? We are on the right side. We are standing on the right side, and what is coming from the left? What are all the flames? God's wrath, God's punishment, what we deserve, and who's taking it? Jesus Christ is taking it on the cross. That's why he, when he calls out, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Jesus, at that moment, is all of a sudden suffering separation from God. What do we call that separation? Eternal Death, that he's taking our place. And so in, in 1 Peter, back to that one verse, it is that idea that he did this for one reason. He didn't do this for show. He didn't do this for, you know, just for, you know, an, an example of how we should sacrifice to get to heaven. He did it so that he could bring us to God. He was the sacrifice. There's that story. If you look in your notes, you even have the story that's written out. That is really a wonderful story about that whole idea of somebody giving 
and, and sacrificing for another person. And the story goes this way. Suppose that two brothers immigrated to the United States in the early 1900s. The older began his new life by getting a job in a house. The younger, however, was determined to enjoy his freedom. He spent his days, nights, drinking and gambling. One fateful night, he began fighting with a man who accused him of cheating. In his drunken state, the younger brother drew a knife and murdered the man. He knew that if he were caught, he'd be hung, so he fled to his older brother's home. The police began to search from house to house looking for the murderer. As the older brother entered his home, he found a pile of blood-stained clothes. Immediately, he knew that his, what his brother had done, and a few moments later, the police approached the home, found the older brother wearing the bloody clothes. Throughout his questioning and trials, the older brother remained silent. He eventually died for a crime he did not commit. Motivated by love for his brother, he died as a substitute, the innocent for the guilty. This story is a very small picture of the death which Jesus Christ suffered for you. Though innocent, he died for the sins of others. Though guilty, the sinner may be free, ransomed by the substitute's blood. Tremendous illustration that you may want to use and just highlight. Okay, now, the resurrection plays into this. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15, and you're going through your material, and we alluded to this, and this is something really, really critical. This is something that Oh, by the way, uh, some of you who are using the printed page, the copies, you don't even have this section because uh, they realize the same thing that I realize at times, that there are times where I preach so much about the death of Jesus Christ that we forget to talk about the resurrection. But the resurrection is pivotal to this whole process of Jesus being able to be our Savior. Why is that? Without the resurrection, then what happens in our salvation? There is none. Why not? But then, then the indication is that there has not been the full sufficient payment for our sins. Though Jesus cried out and he said, okay, at the very end, okay, um, he said, I have paid in full. Father, receive my spirit. So there's some type of union restored. But remember when he was in the garden. Remember in the garden what he prayed. Let this... Something passed from me. Okay, let this cup. Okay, he's not talking about, okay, according to Hebrews, God answered his prayer. Okay, Hebrews says very clearly that he, what he prayed at that moment, it was answered. It wasn't like, I don't want to go to the cross. Don't let me go to the cross. <laughs> he did go to the cross. That's not what he says when he says, let this cup pass from me. He's talking about something else. And that cup of wrath that he's talking about is not being restored to the Father not being delivered himself after paying the penalty. Let this, I'm going to take it, but let this cup of, of eternal separation, let it pass from me. I'm willing to take the, the brunt of it, but please restore our fellowship. And so there's obvious indication as he is dying, it's restored. To us, the most obvious indication that there is total restoration is the resurrection. He came back to life, and not only did he come back to life, but what happens? A few days later, weeks later, he ascends up to heaven to be seated at the... Okay, okay, just weeks before that. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And all of a sudden, weeks later, he's at the right hand of the Father, which shows that he has been completely restored to his position. What does that tell us about our sin? 
It's, it's taken care of. It's done. Okay? Even though he suffered and took all that payment. So the resurrection is critical. We read in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also you have received, by which you are saved, if you keep in memory what I have preached unto you. For I delivered unto you, first of all, that, that which I received, how that Christ, what? Died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he... Rose again the third day according to scriptures. How do we know he rose again? Oh, wait, wait, wait. What's the next verses tell you? There were witnesses. Okay. He was seen of Cephas. Who's Cephas? Peter. Great. Good job. Then who else saw him? Okay. And then who else saw him? 500 saw him. All at... One time, of whom the greater part still remain. Why is that important? That if somebody doubted whether it was true, they could go and ask some of those people what they saw. So this is a pivotal part, okay? This whole idea, because later on he writes these words. Okay, let's jump down to verse 12. Now, if Christ be preached that he rose from the dead, how some of, say some of you that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there be no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ be not risen, then our preaching is... Empty. And your faith is also vain or empty. Yea, and we are found false witnesses because we have testified that God raised him up, okay? Whom he raised not up, if so be the dead rise not. For if the dead rise not, then Christ isn't raised. And if Christ be not raised, your faith is... And you are yet in your... Mm. Okay, so this is a very, very pivotal part of our gospel that we want to preach is that idea, that good news that Jesus Christ has, has resurrected. It's verified by a number of people that are listed there. This resurrection plays into our everyday faith, into that idea that we are saved because we believe in a resurrected Lord. Um, so we, we go on. We, we pause for a second. Okay, We make sure that we understand and that person understands that really Easter is for us. Easter is an everyday expression. Okay, it's not just once a year that idea that Jesus came as a babe to die and then he rose again. So we want to highlight all that and bring that to their, to their thought. There was a, a story that I read about a Hindu holy man that as he is there by the roadside, somebody threw a piece of paper that came by him and so he unfolded it and he found out that it was some Bible verses. He heard about this book. So he got his hands on some more of it and he was reading the story of, of Christ and how Christ had, had sacrificed and given his life and he's reading the gospel story. And so he decided, I want to learn more about this. So he finds an Englishman that lives in that region and asks him if he knows about Christ. And he says, oh, yes, I do. Can you tell me? And that he shared more of the story about Christ and what that Englishman knew. The, uh, the Hindu man noticed that the Englishman was wearing a black band on his sleeve. And he thought, well, that must be something that Christians all wear. So he thought, okay, I'm going to get a black band and put it on my arm. And you and I know that, that it meant something different, right? Okay, it meant that they were grieving. That Englishman was grieving over some family loss or something. But the Hindu guy didn't know English customs, so he got the black band and started wearing it. And he had more and more of this craving. I want to learn more about this Jesus. So he found a church as he was traveling around the region. He found a church, went and sat in one day, and he said they opened up the book, and he was excited. And afterwards, the preacher came down, talked with him, and asked him if he, he's a believer. He pointed to the, the armband. Because in his mind, the armband meant... 
he was a Christian. And so they got into conversation and the Hindu man was told, no, no, this armband means that you're, you're grieving for somebody. It's, you know, you're honoring somebody who has passed away. But he thought, oh, if that's the case, I'm honoring Jesus by the fact that I'll still continue to wear the, the armband. And if people ask me about it, I'll talk about Jesus dying. And he started growing more in his understanding of Jesus. And it wasn't long that he realized that Jesus was not dead so what do you think he did with the armband? He took it off. He took it off because he thought, no, no, no. Uh, the, the Christ that, that makes him so different is he's not dead. He's alive. And that's the, the beauty of the gospel, that Jesus Christ is alive. Now, here's a question that may come up for some of you. Okay? And this is a legitimate question. That somebody who, um, who may be in school, a young person, a young adult, some grandchild, some neighbor that you're talking with, they say, well, how do we know? Because this is being purported more and more that Jesus really didn't physically die. Watch the History Channel. Okay? They'll have programs that Jesus didn't die. They'll give you ideas that instead of really dying, he... He swooned, or the disciples, they came and they rescued him, or there was, oh, how do we know that Jesus really died? Yeah, some type of substitute. How do we know Jesus really died? Physically, how do we know that Jesus died? The Roman, what do you mean by the Roman soldiers? What do they have to play with this? Okay, okay. The, uh, the Roman soldiers are pretty good witnesses that we can rely upon, right? Because they have a prisoner, and they were given an order to execute him. If they don't fulfill the order... They're going to die. Roman law, if you don't fulfill your order, you die. You take the place of the prisoner. So for those men to come through and do this, this thing, you know, what did they do to make sure the guys were dead? They broke their legs because hanging on the cross, you'd have to push and pull yourself up to get the next breath because otherwise you would suffocate. By breaking the legs, what's going to happen to the person? They're going to suffocate. Okay, and they come to Jesus. They don't break his legs because... So... They pierce the side, and what comes out? Okay, the physiological evidence that you have that the water and blood is just, it's an account. It's a medical account that gives an idea that probably the pericardium has burst, that Jesus Christ's heart has ruptured at that moment and from medical expertise. And so you have evidences that he is, not only do you have the Roman soldiers, the spearing of Jesus, but who else is a good evidence that Jesus was dead? Who's, who's good witness of this? How, yeah, how about the people that bury him? Did they want to bury him? Did they want him dead? Okay, so remember their attitude. They don't want him dead. They want him alive. And so if they thought there was a breath, there was a hope, what would they have done? Put him in a tomb and roll a stone? No. No. And so you have to remember the mental, the mental um, uh, condition of the individuals involved here. The Roman soldiers, they want him dead. His friends and family, they want him alive. And everybody testified to the same thing. He was dead, physically dead. And then those who say, oh, he swooned and he came back to, to life inside the tomb. And when he came back to life inside the tomb, he escaped. And you go, what man that emaciated could roll the stone away and overcome a number of guards outside? The common sense of it makes absolutely 
no sense whatsoever. So you have all these evidences. Now, here's what happens that, that you and I have to also answer because the idea of coming back from the dead is really, really amazing. Okay? How do we know that Jesus came back from the dead? How do we know that? Okay, right away in the Bible it indicates, right away the story was purported that what happened? And he didn't rise from the dead, but what was, the, what was given? The disciples came and stole the body. And I've told you this before. When I was in China and I spoke, I ran into this with, with a, a group of college students. That's what they were taught in their college, that this Christianity tells the story. He came back from the dead, but actually the, his disciples stole the body. They taught it as fact in China. Okay? And I don't doubt there's a number of Americans who believe this too. How do you answer them when somebody says, how do we know that he really, really, really rose from the dead? How do you know his body wasn't stolen? Okay, the tra- the, the, uh, if I can rephrase, she said, from fearful to bold, the disciples. The transformation in those disciples. Okay, even, uh, let's take a step further, Barb. They would even be so bold as to do what? Give their own lives for a lie? I mean, we stand for a lot of stuff, and we can go a long way with a lie. But if it's going to cost you your life, most everybody's going to back down at that point, right? What else gives you an evidence that he definitely did resurrect? Okay, there was, there was the, evi- the, the two men walking on the road to Emmaus give an account. We just, we just read here. How, who else gave an account? Okay, the woman who went to the tomb. Who else gave an account? Who else saw him? Peter saw him privately. Who else? All the apostles saw him. Who else? Okay, Thomas doubted, and then Thomas was convinced. What did you say? The 500 people at one time. Oh, they're all having imagination problems. How do you answer that? Folk, these are legitimate this is what's being taught. If, 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 I'm, if, I'm, if I'm spouting this out and you say people don't think this way, this is in the theology books. If you, if you take some church theology books that are being taught in modern day seminaries, these are the arguments given that he swooned. That the disciples imagined, and it's not true. They didn't see him really. They were having um, mass hallucinations. Yeah, you can say it. Mass hallucinations. This is being taught in seminaries. So how do you answer that? How do you say that you know it's not mass hallucinations? Okay, it's written in the Bible. 500 people, are you serious? And by the way, if you start looking, were these at different times of the day that he appeared? Were they for extended periods of time that he appeared? Did he eat... Did he drink? Not the wine, but did he, did, he, did he say, touch me? And did they handle him? Okay, by the way, don't, don't be confused where it says, uh, in, it depends on your translation, it says that, Mary, do not touch me, for I have not yet risen. And then later on he says, touch me, and you say, well, how is that? The word that's used, Mary, do not hold on to me as not to let go, is the, is the Greek word. So it's not that he forbade people to touch him. In fact, with the disciples, he said, touch me. 
Okay, so there's the physical, there's all these different thoughts, okay? If the body was stolen, all the authorities had to do was take them to the right tomb. Show the body, produce the body. The, the silence of the authorities through the book of Acts speaks to the reality of the resurrection. Does that make sense? Because all they had to do, if, the, if they went to the wrong tomb, if the, if, you know, that, they would just say, here it is. Here it is. Here's the, here it is. Now, the, the, the sincerity, the idea that they stole and propagated a lie. Well, they gave their lives. And there were so many people involved. You're telling me that hundreds of people were in on a lie? And, you know, people who had the character to die for what they believed in? They were all, it was a mass lie? It just doesn't make sense. And so the, uh, the obvious solution is that Jesus really, really did come from heaven to the earth, that he really did give his life as ransom for many. He took the punishment. He rose again. He really wants to forgive the person you're talking about their sins. And so the conclusion is, hallelujah, hallelujah, that we have a wonderful Savior. Okay, now, let's, here's, the, here's the critical point. Now, you're talking, with your, you're talking with your neighbor, your friend. You've got them to understand. They agree. The Bible says I'm a sinner. The Bible says that Jesus died for me. Now, here you've got to bring it together. Okay, let's, let's tie the two. You and I, we've got this. We've, we understand this, but let's bring it together. Let's mesh it for somebody else. We want to make sure that they understand now there is, because of what Christ has done, we have a way to heaven. We have an opportunity to get our names written in the book of life, but there's only one way to do it. We've already seen it's not by the works of righteousness which we have done. Not of works as any man should boast. Jesus says, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. So you're talking them through. And you're reminding them that this is why Jesus came. To get us to heaven. The just for the unjust. To bring us to God. In fact, when he was birthed, this was the promise that he was going to say, that he came to save his people from their sins. And you're pointing to the verse that said, what does this verse tell you? Jesus Christ. Christ came for one reason. What is it? And you're trying to highlight that to them. And you take them to John chapter 12, and this is an interesting verse. But as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God. Oh, by the way, this is, this is a critical verse. Most people will say to you, everybody is a son of God. What one word in this verse says that's not true? Become. Become. Become, okay, something that we weren't before, okay? And so you look at the verse, okay? Jesus wants to make us God's sons, okay? And we'll talk more about this, the difference in the words for sons uh, when we get into uh, a little bit later lessons. But he wants us to become the sons, okay, to bring us to God. So the big question you have out of this verse is how do you receive him? How do you do this? Okay, that's... Now, for me... If you were talking to me as a 15, 16-year-old, my answer to this would be probably something you, you wouldn't hear in this church. I would have said to you, how do I receive Jesus Christ? By communion. Because I grew up a Roman Catholic, and I was taught that when, during the service, during the Mass, that little host that the priest would hold up, and then they'd ring the bells during the Mass. At that moment, that wafer becomes the actual physical body of Jesus Christ. And when I go to communion, a few minutes after that dingling happened in the church service, that ringing of the bell, he would place Jesus Christ on my tongue. And I would take Jesus into my body. 
You need to explain what it means to receive Jesus Christ. Because as a Catholic, I would say to you, I receive Jesus Christ every week that I go to church and celebrate the Mass. Okay, and so that's very important. Now we start talking about what does it mean to believe. By the way, if you had asked me as a teenager, do I believe in Jesus Christ? I would tell you, yes, because I quoted the Apostles' Creed every Mass I went to. Okay, and that's where, so now you've got to start defining words. Now you have to be really careful and to help people to understand what you're talking about, okay? So when we're talking about receiving Christ, there's two aspects to this that your book goes at length, and we'll just highlight this quickly. One aspect is this. To believing on Christ means you're turning away from sin, okay? Basically, you're going to repent, okay? Repentance has the idea, and it's a biblical term. Um, we had somebody visiting our church in the last three, four years that they came, they loved the church, but they didn't believe that the Bible taught repentance, the Bible never teaches repentance was their claim. So, sat down, we show this verse. Repent therefore and be converted, that your sins may be blotted out. Well, that's not what it really says. What does it really say? Well, it doesn't mean repent. What does the word repent then mean? I don't know, but the Bible doesn't say we need to repent. Okay. I don't know how to deal with somebody who you, you, you let the Word of God just deal with. I, I don't understand how to answer that kind of thing. Repent means to repent. So if I'm repenting, what, do I, what am I going to physically do right now? I'm going to turn around and go a different direction. That's the idea of repent. Okay. And so the repenting of your sins is a biblical thought. You go to First Thessalonians, and it gives you an example of it. Okay, that they, they turned from the idols and they turned to God. That's repentance. I turn away from that and I turn to something else. And so in this text, okay, the idea is that Jesus Christ it was, was what they turned to. That he replaced their old way, their own desires. He wasn't, and this is a critical thought, Jesus isn't added to. Do you know how some religions, they add Jesus to everything they believe? Yes, no? Some of the pagan religions, they add Jesus as another idol. or an, That's not what we're talking about. We're saying that person has to repent, turn to Jesus Christ, and then they need to trust in Jesus alone. So there's two aspects of conversion. Of, that's repentance and trusting in Christ alone. They re, need to realize that he and he alone is their only hope into heaven. We've already highlighted that. We've highlighted passages like in the Philippian jailer, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you shall be saved. And my big question is, now as... And this this was my battle. None of you probably battled. I, as a 16-year-old Catholic, I believed in Jesus, and I struggled with, what do you mean, believe in Jesus? I couldn't... That, I do believe in Jesus, but you need to repent of your sins. Well, I do feel sorry when I go to confession, and the priest makes me say, so many Hail Marys and so many Our Fathers, and I feel a form of regret. That means that I was always... A believer. But I wasn't. I really wasn't. I believed in Jesus Christ here, but the problem was believing in him where? Yeah, okay. So the, the, the illustration, if I'm sitting in somebody's home and I'm sharing the gospel, 
I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do this. You, you probably have something far better. But if I'm sitting there and I'm talking and I'm trying to explain, because this is me, this is my experience, I struggled with the thought of believing and trying to clarify what does it mean to believe. So I'll get up from my chair and I will ask the, them these questions. I will say to them, um, do you believe that this chair will hold me up? And they're going to say, yeah, okay, why can this chair hold, you, hold me up? And we'll walk through, I'll walk through because it has legs and it's balanced and it's got a seat. The structure of it, it's provided. Okay, I believe this chair can hold me up. And so I'm standing there, I'm looking at the person and I'll say, Larry, is the chair holding me up? I believe this chair can hold me up. Is it holding me up right now? No. Okay, is the chair holding me up right now? Am I totally believing on this chair? right now. Not totally, because what am I doing? Okay, I'm slightly leaning, but you move that chair, I'm going to still be okay. Okay. Am I totally trusting? Am I totally trusting? What it, where does it come to be totally trusting, believing on the chair? Right? Now I'm totally trusting, and it better hold me up. Okay. What I can believe in Jesus, I know the facts. And this was where I was at as a 16-year-old Catholic kid. I knew the facts, I knew the stories, but I was believing on Jesus plus my church, my baptism. I was believing on Jesus plus the priest, plus my parents, plus being an American, da-da-da-da, and only on that, it may have 73, did I say, okay, it's fully Jesus, and only Jesus. And that was a huge, that was a huge wake-up. For me, that kind of all of a sudden opened it up, is just try to really understand. And so that's what I do when I'm trying to share the gospel. I, I look and say, okay, what was the struggle for me? I, wanna, I want to help them to get over those words and understand. Two groups of people in this verse, who are they? Believers, unbelievers. Okay? Two, two groups, two destinies. One has life. The unbelievers, they're going to suffer the wrath of God. And then we talk about, okay, they have to call upon the name of the Lord. They have to ask him. Jesus did everything, but they must ask him personally. So I'm talking with somebody right about now that seems perfectly reasonable, that Alice says that it makes sense. I know I'm a sinner. I know Jesus died for me. I know that he and he alone get me into heaven. And I, want, and I ask Alice, do you want to pray? And this is what I hear more than anything else is this. I don't know what to say. What do you do with somebody that says, I don't know what to say? Okay, you offer to pray first. Do you give them an example of what they can pray? Okay. What, Joyce, were you piping up? Okay, 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 okay. Uh, do, do any of you say, well, if you sincerely repeat these words after me, have you ever done that, any of you? And walk them through? Okay, okay. Uh, there's a variety of things. I, I personally, this is me personally, because I struggled with eternal security, because I didn't know, I couldn't remember what I prayed, what I said. So I want to be very careful because I grew up in a church that had what type of prayers? I'm in Catholic. Memorized, Memorized prayers. So I, I'm going to 
be very cautious of that because of my background. So typically what I'll say to the person is this, is let's pretend Jesus is sitting right here. Okay, I'll get off the chair and say, Jesus is sitting right there. Okay, Larry, what would you ask Jesus to do for you right now? I would, and he might walk through, and I'll walk through asking him questions to help him to verbalize what he needs to do and understand. And then I say to them, you can talk to Jesus as if he is right there because? Okay. And so then the questions often come up and they say, well, can I pray alone? And the answer is? Sure you can, sure you can. And then what do you tell them? In your book, page 1415, is a series of different uh, ideas and concerns that you want to tell them that they doesn't mean, uh, 1314 on the pages, doesn't mean that they'll never have a problem again and it's some good information you can share with them. And then I want to tell that person there's more to do. Can we set up a Bible study? Can we walk a little bit further and go through this? And we want to set up and establish a Bible study. Now, in your notes, for you, for your own training, do this this week, okay? There are memory verses in that booklet, okay? If you haven't memorized them, they are good verses to memorize that you can share. I would do this as well. I would memorize the Romans Road, okay? And some of you are familiar with what we mean. It's just the Romans Road are several verses from the book of Romans, and you can just walk them through, and it gives the gospel very simply. I would do this. One of you asked me last week, how, what do I do if I don't remember verses, I would remember the one reference, and one reference is the only one I'd commit to memory, would be the first one in Romans 3.10. And then next to Romans 3.10, I would write Romans 3.23, so I know what the next verse is. Next to that, I'd put 6.23. So I have a road map that takes me through, so I don't have to rely upon my poor memory... Okay, but I get the first one going, and then I can take them through. And then there's a section in your workbook that has some homework. Okay, you're going to encourage them. I'm going to encourage you. Look at the homework pages, the questions and answers. You fill it in as if you are going to be teaching this to somebody. What would you put in for those answers that would help the person that you're trying to disciple? And remember, when we go into round number two, some of you are going to be teaching each other, going over this, acting like you are teaching an unsaved person, and you might. They might come with you to church, and this is your opportunity. So have material written down that you want to highlight from the lesson. Let's stop there, and I really appreciate you staying awake. Thank you on such a rainy day for just staying with me. We're headed to Job. Uh, this morning. So if you want to read chapter 22 and 23 and get that set, that's great. Let's get ready for worship. And thank you, thank you, thank you for listening to me this whole period of time.